we waited in line for two hours at the studios for a great movie ride outside in the sun. And I remember thinking while I was in line that there's got to be a better way for people to tour parks without having these really long waits in line. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the DCL Duo podcast. And tonight, I don't think we can be any more excited than we are about our guest. He is, in no small measure, a bit of a Disney celebrity. His name is well known throughout the Disney community. He is the, I'm going to call him the founder, or at least the co-founder, if not the founder of Touring Plans, and also the co-author of several of the Disney unofficial guidebooks. So we want to welcome Lynn Testa to the show. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sam. Yeah, thanks for coming, Lynn. We're so excited to talk to you today. I'm super excited to be here. Lynn, we normally start with folks as sort of Disney background, but there is a component of your Disney history that I sort of have read specifically that I thought we could kind of key off of, which is my understanding is you wrote your, your was it your master's or your doctoral thesis, essentially, is, is sort of the foundation of where touring plans start. Started. And so how did you decide to study Disney or study theme parks? Like, where did that come from? So it was my uh, master's thesis. Yeah, the, uh, the summer before I went to graduate school, I went to Walt Disney World with my twin sister. We, we waited in line for two hours at the studios for a great movie ride outside in the sun. And I remember thinking while I was in line that there's got to be a better way for people to tour parks without having these really long waits in line. Like I I was absolutely fine with waiting in the line if I knew that that was the best I could do. Mm -hmm. Right. When graduate school started in the fall, I went to my advisors and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to write a computer program where you tell it the rides you want to ride in Walt Disney World. And it tells you the order in which you should ride those rides to minimize your wait in line. And it turns out that that's a super complicated scheduling problem. It's one of the fundamental problems in math and computer science. It even has its own name. It's called the traveling salesman problem. So I studied the time dependent version of that because the time that you wait in line obviously depends on when in the day you you go to the rides. And that's an even harder version of the traveling salesman problems. My master's thesis expanded on the PhD dissertation of the lead research scientist at UPS would also study the same problem. Obviously, UPS is super interested in those kind of problems because if you you imagine like you're delivering packages, so you're the delivery driver, the ride you want to ride, or the customers you have to visit and the weights in line at rides is the travel time between customers. Basically the same problem. So package delivery companies are also super interested in that. Yeah, so that was a, that was my, my two-year master's thesis. At the end of it, the school actually patented my research, which was super interesting. One of the things I did during the thesis was create a website where people could test this out, where you could actually pick rides from a list in the Magic Kingdom. And it would tell you, you know, basically optimize the, the schedule for you using the code that I was working on for my thesis. It's interesting, your traveling salesman problem. Our, my son and I were actually watching a, a show, I think it was with David Pogue from the New York Times, who was kind of going through this problem with, with UPS. And he designed his own route, the computer designed a route, and then they set them to work to see who could do it faster. <laughs> really? It was, it was just like I had heard of the problem, but it was fascinating to sort of see it kind of in that real world time frame. Yeah. UPS is very good at it. Their delivery drivers typically do more than 100 individual stops in a day, which is far more than the number of attractions that you would do in a day. Although it's close. We've had people who have done ultimate touring plans in the Magic Kingdom who've done 98 things in a day. Wow. 
Yeah. That's amazing. You have to figure in the walking time in addition to the waiting time, right? So yours has like an additional component because their waiting time is just based on like travel time and traffic, right? But yours is based on travel time, traffic, and then there's the line waiting time. And then there's the ride itself, right? Right. So there's a a big difference between like Mad Tea Party and, you know, the American Adventure in terms of ride duration. So yeah, got to take that into account as well. Yeah. There are other interesting things that go into that too, because like sometimes the optimal schedule would have you crisscrossing the park. Right. And people hate that. So we we have a bunch of heuristics, you know, rules of thumb built into the code that will not do that unless you tell it specifically, like I'm here to do, you know, 100% rides and I don't care about walking. Yeah. So we'll, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that goes into optimizing the software. It probably took us, I would say, we launched the software online in 2011. It took us about three or four years to get it to the point where like most people understood the plans and, and it worked, they worked well for them out of the box, which is really interesting because uh, Disney's coming up with their um, their Disney Genie app, which is supposed to do something similar. I don't think it's going to be a competitor, but the interesting thing for me was, you know, they announced it last year. We haven't seen even a beta of it, but I know for us, it took us three or four years to figure out all the edge cases of creating a touring plan. And I'm like, I would love to see them, how they're going to test that. So for example, you know, one of the edge cases is this. This happens, this happens fairly frequently. I want to ride Toy Story Mania three times in a row. I've got a fast pass between 9 and 10 a.m. They're granted there are no fast passes right now. But, but bear with me. Should I use the fast pass on the first, second or third ride? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's something that you got to figure out. And like I said, there's, there's all sorts of little things like that that play into good schedule making. Well, so Lynn, let me circle back because we usually start the show with kind of your Disney background. I wanted to start there because I guess the way I would frame this question is what made you decide to apply these extraordinary sort of skills that you have to Disney? You know, uh, it goes back to trips that my twin sister and I have taken. So back when we were very young, like when we were about six years old, our grandparents moved to Florida from Ohio. We would spend the summers with them every year. And one summer they took us to Walt Disney World. And I remember distinctly going through the the line at Pirates of the Caribbean and seeing how Disney had put flickering electric light bulbs in the lights to make it look like candlelight. I'm like, and even then at six, I was like, I knew that, that that's what they were trying to simulate. And I was super, super impressed. You know, I fell in love with it right away thinking that it was, you know, there's, there's this whole man-made environment the size of a city that people care enough about to build things like flickering lights instead of candles. I was really impressed with it and I, I just fell in love with the whole place. So my sister and I would go, you know, as often as we could. Even when we moved from Florida to North Carolina, we would think nothing of hopping in the car on Friday afternoon, driving all night, you know, getting the parks early Saturday morning, spending Saturday and Sunday, you know, in the parks and then driving back late Sunday to be at work Monday morning. I think the, you know, the Disney parks are marvels of engineering. Number one, I think what they do, they do really, really well. But number two, it's always fascinating for me to see, you know, just how it all runs and, you know, why it works and things like that are, are really interesting to me. No, that's really interesting. It sort of applies the whimsy with the science, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it, it also is yeah. so like if there's one sort of theme that is consistent throughout my my computer work, it's that I hate wasting time and money. Like <laughs> whether it's it's corporate stuff or whether it's the Disney stuff, like optimization problems are, are sort of where I where I fit in. Well, so when when did you start touring plans? It was born out of this sort of master's thesis that you have. But when was this? So I graduated in 2000. And I think we started the site in 2001. And, and really the interesting thing was during my thesis, I was talking to Bob Salinger from the Unofficial Guide because he was working with people at MIT to do touring plans for the Unofficial Guide before I got involved. So I was talking to him about 
things like, you know, where do I get this, you know, data for wait times, for example, or how do you handle something like the Diamond Horseshoe Saloon Review, which at the time, if you remember, was both an attraction and a place where you could get lunch, right? So how do you, I mean, there, it, it's like, what if you could eat on Splash Mountain? Like how would, <laughs> how would you? <laughs> how do you quantify that time? And yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you do that? Right. So I was asking those questions and, you know, I was spending a lot of time in the parks too. So I was, as I was going through the parks, I was updating the book. And one of the things that we realized was we would get requests for people to do touring plans that just didn't, there were great touring plan ideas, but we didn't have any more space in the book. So things like I want to sleep late and still see the magic kingdom or, you know, the highlights of the magic kingdom. So the original idea for the website was to hold touring plans that wouldn't go in the book and also book updates. At the time we were publishing the book once a year and Wiley was the publisher at the time and they hated both of those ideas. They were super concerned about the website cannibalizing sales of the book. So again, this is this is how the publishing industry viewed the internet 20 years ago. The evidence that we have is that they got that completely wrong, like utter, utterly and, and, and completely wrong. So they didn't want us to do a website, but we did anyway, basically saying, you know, sue me. The interesting thing is we got so much good feedback from people so much faster through the internet that it basically changed how we produced the book. And, and Wiley no longer does travel, so we're still around and they're not. <laughs> <laughs> one of us was right, one of us wasn't. I'm just saying... To go back to something you just mentioned, how do you get the data? My impression was maybe in the early days, you're actually sending people into the park with stopwatches, but maybe that maybe I'm being a little naive, but like, how, how do you get this data around wait times to feed the model? That's exactly what happened in the early days. We, and I mean, we is in my family. I have a brother and two sisters and we would go to the parks, you know, for a week at a time, several times per year and essentially walk around the parks all day collecting wait times. We went to Kinko's and printed special spiral bound notebooks that had each attraction as a row and the time of day as a column. So we could carry these palm-sized notebooks around and write in them. And they were on cardboard stock. So even if it rained, it wouldn't get wet and fall apart. And we would take these pieces of paper and then enter them into Excel. And I would try and come up with sort of a generic model that said, okay, throughout this entire week, Space Mountain was about this wait time at 9 a.m., about this wait time at 9.15 a.m., about this wait time at 9.30 a.m. and so on. And then try and figure out like for any arbitrary day, what Space Mountain's wait time would be at any given time throughout that day. And now, of course, we have now we have statisticians whose literal job is to do exactly that. Now, when you when you were doing this back in the day, then like I feel like the model is is super complex now because you can take into account like the exact day, the time of year, all that you know, if it's a holiday, all that kind of stuff. The model back then, I take it, you didn't necessarily have a different model for like Christmas week versus just a random day in October. No, we didn't. It was very basic at the time. In fact, it was difficult for us to even figure out things like different park opening and closing hours. I'm pretty decent at computer science. I'm not very good at math. I know, right? The irony <laughs> of it. Uh, but the computer does the math for you, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. But our uh, our data scientist Fred Hazelton has been working with us, I think, since 2001, 2002, and he did the exact same thing that I did. He wrote a letter to Bob Salinger saying, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm interested in this. Do you have anything for me to work on? And if there's one thing that the unofficial guy loves to this day, it's free labor. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yeah. So Fred and I have been together 20 years almost. Wow. Yeah. Fast forward to today, is the data gathering, is it all automated now in some way? Like, how are you keeping up with uh, new ride openings? You know, yeah. these parks are changing just a lot. And so just curious, like, what's the data gathering exercise like today? So we get data three different ways. The, now we have our lines app, which we give to our users of touring plans. And in normal times, there's you know, anywhere from three to 600 families in the park every day using our, our stuff. And they're able to enter not only posted wait times, but 
actual wait times. So we have a little timer function in the app where you can say things like, I just got in line at Tower of Terror and then click a button when you're done so that we know, for example, the difference between what the posted wait time is and how long you actually wait. So users are one way we get wait times. The second way we get wait times is we have people whose job is to be in the parks every single day. So we have dedicated employees whose job is to be in the parks. And that's useful because when Disney's posted wait times look off, it's their job to jump in line and time the actual wait to make sure that our estimates are accurate. So for example, if you're walking by you know, Haunted Mansion and you see the line stretching out the door and you know down towards the river, but the posted wait time says five minutes, their job is to get in line and see how long the actual wait is. The third way we get wait times is from Disney's APIs. So one question about, well, one, can I get a job? <laughs> right. <laughs> to wait, waiting in he line. He just said free labor, no, too. Free. That's right. right sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're paid. And they, they have health care, too. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's, a de- it's, a de- it's not a bad job. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but the, the real question I was wondering is, now, when you've got these users doing time check, if those times look off with the posted time, do you also send your employees through to kind of double check? Because I, I imagine there's some user error there. Right. There's an entire process that we build that we term generally outlier detection where we're looking for things like that. And it, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on, for example, do we have any other recent wait times from other users that can corroborate the thing that was just entered? Or is this someone who all of their past wait times have been reasonably accurate? You know, so there's a we have like a trust system built in. We have comparisons. And even then we have sort of like a, a quarantine, if you will, area for wait times that we're not sure about. And so there's a variety of ways that we both detect in another ISO later approve wait times depending on how, how believable they are. The big issue that we see is when the wait times are consistently wrong on purpose. This is a classic example. On New Year's Eve in, I think, 2015, we noted that the posted wait time for Space Mountain was something like 240 minutes. But if you looked at the internal data feed that Disney was sending out through My Disney Experience, it was saying that the wait time was 45 minutes. So in that case, when there's such a huge difference between the posted wait time and any other piece of information that someone could give us, it's very hard for the models to say, you know, okay, this this 45 minute number is right because if the posted wait times keep coming in at like you know 240 240 240 240 240 240 and you get two people that say 45 and 45 you know which one do you believe and why that's really difficult for us and you see the same thing sort of at night like at Toy Story Mania or now you'll see it at, at Runaway Railway where Disney would artificially boost the posted wait time to discourage people from getting in line so they could close the park on time so every theme park uses posted wait times one way or another to nudge you to go somewhere else and I suspect that's why the genie app won't end up being a competitor for you guys. The really interesting, that's like literally, that's the fundamental thing for us. Like there's there's two ways of looking at Genie, right? Let's say you've got two things scheduled and the first one is Expedition Everest. And then there's another thing right after it. So let's say that the posted wait time for Expedition Everest is 60 minutes, but internally we know, and Disney knows that it's really a 20 minute wait. Is Disney's going to schedule step two for you 60 minutes later, like the posted wait time says, or 20 minutes later, like they know it should be. Because if it's 60 minutes, you know, I'll compete with that schedule all day long. (laughs) 40 minutes of waste. But if they do schedule it 20 minutes later, then they're basically saying, we know that our posted wait times are wrong. I don't know how they're going to resolve that or even if they're going to even attempt it. I am curious, speaking of Disney, so obviously the 
public reception of what you're doing has got to be phenomenal and has been phenomenal. I think we know that, right? From the touring plans in the back of the books to the usage of the website. I mean, touring plans is a sort of a household name in the Disney community. So it's been great. What was Disney's initial reaction? It depends on the level of the organization that you talk about. So like frontline cast members, you know, and their immediate managers invariably love what we're doing and love the site. I've been told by more than one cast member in a line who's, who's actually sought me out like, hey, you're Lentesta. I love what you're doing. That happens on a regular basis. Where the relationship sort of becomes more contentious is once you get to like media relations or to management. And the reason for that is that both Touring Plans and the Unofficial Guide have always been strongly consumer-centric. If a ride isn't worth your time or a restaurant's not worth your money, we will say, say so. And to be honest, I mean, in, in my earlier years, I would take glee, like in particular joy in insulting, you know, uh, if, <laughs> if Disney did something badly, it, your lawyers, you, you yeah. know, every once in a while, yeah. it's just fun to give like a little dig, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's and especially, you know, their marketing, I think, especially a few years ago was kind of getting a little hyperbolic. Like, you know, when they said that, you know, their restaurants are world class. Well, I can think of maybe three. <laughs> really good point. You know, yeah. So for, for us, you know, it was important to sort of clarify, you know, when Disney says its resorts are world class, does that really mean that they compete against the four seasons and the peninsulas of the world in terms of luxury? Or does it mean that they've got them all over the world? It came to a head when you guys remember back when like 2015, 2016, when the studios was getting ready to demolish everything to build Toy Story Land and Galaxy's Edge, they basically closed 40% of the park while they were still increasing ticket prices. And, and Bob and I were sort of tracking this over the years. We knew that the studios was closing things without reopening them. And if you look at attractions like Indiana Jones or Rocket Roller Coaster or Voyage of the Little Mermaid, those things haven't been updated in 20, you know, 25 years. So finally in 2016, we said, look, the studios isn't worth the price of admission. If you want to see a theme park related to arts and entertainment, go go to Universal instead. So the book the book <laughs> came out on a Monday and, and, and coincidentally, the New York Times was working on a similar article about the problems at the studios. And so the book came out on a Monday. On Tuesday, that quote appeared in the New York Times. And I've never been invited to a media event since then. Well, it's funny because the analog to what they're doing at Epcot today is fairly strong. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and so last year we started saying, you know, look, Epcot's going to go through a whole thing. You know, if there's one park that you should maybe consider not going to, it's Epcot, right? And again, that's solid consumer advice. Yeah, right? it's great advice. I mean, for us, it's like if you want to go to the World Showcase, that's the reason to go to Epcot right now. But I think that's literally exactly what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, there's nothing really there that's open. <laughs> I mean, or, you know, nothing so amazing. You know, the being banned by Disney. Disney media relations actually became a teachable moment for us in the book because what we tell people in the book now is, you know, look, you're all on social media. You guys, you guys see things like, you know, media events during the opening of attractions or lands or whatever. Just know that if someone is there from social media, if Disney invites them, it's because Disney knows that they're going to say only positive things about it. I mean, to this day, like I, it's difficult for us to get actual answers from media relations about operational things. I'm actually updating the book right now. And, you know, to ask them a question like Josh Jamar, said that the park reservation system is likely here with us for the foreseeable future. Is that, are you guys going to stand by that statement? Yes or no? I would never even consider sending that to media relations because they're either going to ignore it or have no comment. I'm also curious, Lynn, you know, we love Disney. We go to Disney a lot. We talk about Disney. I think even having started a podcast changes the way we think about visiting Disney. I can only imagine running a site like Touring Plans. Has it changed how you experience going to a Disney park? I never turn off the evaluation of things. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's that's been true for so long that it's it's just second nature now. But no, I still I still love the parks. The thing that helped a lot is moving to Celebration so that I could be within like I'm within a six minute drive of the studios. So I could be in the in the studios in, in 10 minutes, you know, inside the park in 10 minutes if I really wanted to be. And that makes it a lot easier for a variety of reasons. One, if I just want to go, you know, get something to eat because, you know, the parks have some good restaurants. That's way easier to do. If I want to spend the night at, you know, at a hotel and just sort of be in the bubble for a little bit, again, super, super easy to do. There's not as much pressure now to, you know, go for 16 hours and see, you know, and see everything. I've done it recently, you know, just to make sure I can still do it. You know, but the ability to just bop into a park, ride a couple of rides, get something fun to eat and sort of just enjoy the atmosphere. That's really changed how much I appreciate the parks. Well, I wanted to ask uh, before we move on from here, Lynn, I just want to ask, like, what's next for touring plans? I know you guys just released or announced at least line 2.0. I don't think it's out yet. I think you're waiting for approval from Apple. But like, what, what's next? Where are you guys headed? So it, it actually came out today, the day that we're recording the, oh my uh, goodness. the podcast. Yeah. So it's a complete rewrite of our app. So the, the Lines app has been around since 2011. The very first developer we ever hired, his name's Henry Work, designed it. And it was very much Apple 1.0 in terms of the interface, especially on iPhones. And don't get me wrong, it's lasted for 10 years. Any piece of software that has lasted for 10 years is a success in my book. But it was very heavily text-based. It ran very fast and it did not take up many network or battery resources. So it was very very, very efficient. The downside is it didn't look great. And there are certain functions like GPS navigation that were difficult, if not impossible to do in the current platform. By the way, Henry actually left us to go work for Disney as an Imagineer. Oh, wow. oh my so, goodness. So, little stepping stone there. Yeah. Obviously, we can't talk about work anymore, but but we still stay in touch. So that's nice. So our, our developer, Brad Huber, came on board last year, wanted to bring the app into the modern era. I've looked at that every year. Like, you know, when I, when I come with a list of things or goals that we want to do each year for the company, I've always looked at the app and I'm like, yeah, we could do it, but what are we going to get? The reason why I say that is Lines is the highest rated app for Disney World on both iTunes and Google Play. On its five-star scale, it averages around 4.7. And the number one complaint is that it costs money. To which I reply, I'm, I'm all for people working for free, you first. Right? <laughs> if, you, if you really honestly think that this should be free, come work for me for free and we'll, we'll talk about it. So yeah, I mean, it's rated 4.7. Yes, it has limitations in the same way that like Craigslist has limitations, but no one's going back to running personal ads in newspapers anymore. So I was always like, what are we going to get on this? But then when we hired our developer, Brad, we started talking about what you could do on a new platform. And by there, I mean, not only like, you know, GPS-based navigation, but if we looked 20 years in the future, what is touring a theme park 20 years from now look like. You know, Brad convinced me that we should move. So Brad's been working on this more or less nonstop for the last year. This is entirely his baby. I think he did a, a fantastic, fantastic job on it. I couldn't, couldn't be more proud of the app or him. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, now that it's out, I'm going to go update and take a look. As I, I love the app. We use it constantly when we're planning our trips to the park. So uh, that's awesome to hear. I'll give you a quick story too. So uh, so this summer we hired our first summer intern ever. His name is Yoel. He's a uh, computer science freshman at Harvard. He wanted to, he wanted to work for us. We wanted to work for him. And again, we're looking sort of like, you know, 20 years from now, what is, what is touring a theme park going to be like? Because if you think about 20 years ago, when I did my thesis, it was basically how do we get computers to optimize your day in the park? And now Disney's actually 20 years later thinking that's a great idea. So again, we're looking you know, 20 years from now. And so we, we started thinking that everyone will be wearing sort of like Apple augmented reality glasses. 20 years from now and that decisions will be made for you more or less automatically. So how do we do augmented reality and 
basically make all these decisions for you. So in a perfect world, you put on your glasses, your glasses realize that you're in Walt Disney World or in the Magic Kingdom, and it basically tells you what to do at every step of the way. So we started working on on that. So our statisticians are working on this idea that, imagine you showed up in, in the Magic Kingdom and didn't plan anything. If you turn the app on and we knew that, what would we suggest you go to first as an attraction? And based on your feedback from that, where would we send you next? And then would, would you know any information about that user at that time? Like, would you be taking into account, like, let's say their age or other demographic information, or would it just be sort of based on, oh, this is a ride that like everybody loves? So we're, we're planning out for either case, right? In, in, in one case, we know a little bit about you. You may have been to a park before and you may have filled out surveys uh, for us about what you liked and didn't like in Walt Disney World. In other cases, we literally don't know anything about you. And we'd need to ask you questions like, how many people are in your party? Do you like roller coasters? But again, what's the minimum number of things that we need to ask in order to make those recommendations? The other thing that we did, we our, our intern UL asked the question, well, why do you even need to look at an app? So think about using either My Disney Experience or even lines for park navigation. You got to take the phone out of your pocket. You've got to navigate to the app. You've got to find the thing that has the maps and then you've got to sort of follow it while you're walking along. So why do you have to do those first two steps? So what Yoel did was using the camera on your phone, he taught the app to recognize where you were in the park. Oh, wow. And then using augmented reality. So imagine holding your phone up with the camera app open. He superimposed walking directions on what you see in Walt Disney World to basically guide you to wherever you want to go. So the test that we did, and I have a a video of this, is from Space Mountain to, I think, Dumbo. And along the way, there are these purple arrows that are floating in space saying this way. So something like that, right? So once we can do navigation, you know, what do we do after that? One idea that we have is if you hold your phone up to the wait time sign. We could tell you, you know, what the actual wait time is going to be, but we could give you information about the ride itself. Like, oh, this is Jungle Cruise. Adults over age 30 rate this three out of five stars. Kids rate it two out of five stars. Posted wait time says 30. We think you're going to wait 18. It offers fast pass. The next fast pass available is at 420 PM. You know, we think you should ride now. On the augmented reality front, if you can throw red X's up over the restaurants that people should avoid, that would probably also be a great win. So, Dude, <laughs> so in the in the app, it actually it actually says this now. <laughs> In the unofficial guide, we always used to give like a rating number for everything, right? So, you know, 83% of the people who visit Be Our Guest enjoy it. But we never provide the, provided the context around that number. Like, is 83% good? Is it bad? I don't know. So now in the app, we we do that. We provide context labels that say 96% is exceptional for Nomad Lounge or, you know, for something in the studios. We would say, you know, do not visit this this, this restaurant. <laughs> actually, <laughs> circling back to white white media relations won't talk to us. Yeah. So actually, there are there are a few restaurants where we, we actually make the recommendation not to visit it at all. So, Len, let's shift gears for a second. I know that in addition to being an avid Parks fan, we heard from Aaron, who was on our show, Aaron Foster, who was on our show, that you were also a pretty big Disney Cruise Line fan. So I'm curious, let's start with sort of what's your background on the cruise line? How many cruises have you been on? Which ships have you sailed? So it's funny. I only started sailing in 2012 with the launch of the fantasy. I prior to that point, my big concern about being on a cruise was that there wasn't going to be enough for me to do and I wouldn't have internet access. And let me preface <laughs> this with a little with a little with a story. Years ago, when I was married to my daughter's mother, they decided they wanted a family vacation in the Outer Banks of North Carolina that involved going to an island with no electricity and no internet access. And I said well, I had to work, so I said I would be there like, you know, Thursday afternoon and through the weekend. And I realized sort of like on Friday that I needed like I think constant internet 
access is a constitutional right. <laughs> like it's, it should be. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Saturday night, I was at the point where I was, and I'm not exaggerating, I was on the beach holding up my cell phone, trying to get reception so I could hire a helicopter to take me and my family off the island because I was done. <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not kidding. Right. So I like, I was, I had had enough. So, you know, so my concern on the cruise was that no internet and then, uh, you know, I was going to be bored, but I got on the fantasy and just fell in love with it. I love the style of it. There was plenty of stuff to do. We discovered the, the rainforest spa pass, which are, I think that literally the best value in cruising. So Laurel and I had super fun, I think on the four days and I was hooked. So I've been on obviously all the Disney ships. I've been on, I don't know, I guess 15 Disney cruises. No, more than that. Probably more than that because I, I got platinum just on the Caribbean cruises and I haven't been on a Caribbean Disney cruise in, in a few years now. Yeah. I got to the point where I'd done like 12 consecutive Caribbean cruises and I got kind of burned out on it. But but the other cruises, I've been going to other destinations now and I really like those non-Caribbean destinations. I don't know if it's how I would visit Europe, but certainly for like Alaska or even Hawaii or Canada, I think those are those cruises are fabulous options. I guess, B, what have been some of your favorite cruises, Lynn? So my three favorite were for different reasons. We did out of Vancouver, a back-to-back last Alaska, first Hawaii cruise. So... 17 consecutive days on the wonder it it was it was fantastic alaska is so I, th- th- in fact i did this that was my first cruise right after the 12 straight caribbean cruises to be able to see a big ship like the wonder surrounded by mountains was completely different scenery for me and i thought it was i thought it was fascinating and also the small towns that you visit sort of along the way are great you know 5 days to hawaii is actually the best way to get acclimated to the time difference between the west coast and hawaii so that was good i don't know that i loved every particular part every port in hawaii but we did end up at alani for a few days and that was my first trip to alani as well have you guys been we have no, not we have not it's a, it is high on our list since we're on the west coast it's like very easy for us to get to it's it's Disney's best resort, and I I would struggle to even say what would be number two by it. Like number, it's it's the best thing that Disney has done in forever. The other cruise that I I just did recently, I did it in 2018, was the Quebec cruise out of New York. Oh my god! And the the great part about it was you get to visit these super super small towns in Canada, like in Saguenay, I think it was. Like half the town came out to visit us. Like it's a it's an event. There was another town too where the town was so small, like the downtown was literally one block long, but the only vehicles that they had to get passengers from the boat dock to this one block downtown were the two school buses that the town had. But because they needed the school buses, they canceled school oh my for the God. day. <laughs> and because they canceled school, they had to cancel work. You know, so it was a holiday, basically, basically. It was a holiday for the town. So everyone in the town came out to say hi to the ship. And it was fantastic. They're, I, it's they're funny, cheering I, as you come in. You went, thanks for the day off, Disney. <laughs> woo, I know, right? Pretty, pretty so we ended up in Quebec right under the uh, Chateau Frontenac, the hotel that is depicted in Epcot's pavilion, Canada Pavilion in, in Epcot. So we got to stay there for a night. And, and true story, they actually have a restaurant called Le Cellier. It, it's almost like, uh, like the Imagineers got to Quebec, walked around for a couple of hours and said, you know, we'll take one of those and one of those and one of those and one of those. And, of those. and let's throw in a waterfall and we're done. Yeah, so. <laughs> the, uh, the other cruise that I would do, and I uh, the first cruise we ever sent Aaron on was the Northern Europe cruise. I would love to see Norway by boat. I've actually been there, but I flew from London at the time to Oslo 
And I would, I would totally go back to Norway, especially if there's a chance of seeing like Aurora Borealis or seeing some of the smaller towns. Yeah, I would love to do that. I'm not sure about that. Have you guys done a med cruise? We haven't. It's high on my list, but Disney charges an extreme premium for that med cruise. But I've heard really good things about the Mediterranean as a destination. My two concerns on the DCL cruise for the med are, number one, the price. It's like twice as much as Royal for basically the same ports. And then two, I, I think there are probably towns in Italy that deserve more than six or eight hours for sightseeing. So is, you know, for the, for the money and involved, is that the best way to see Europe? Well, especially as far away as the ports are from some of those towns. You say you're visiting Rome, <laughs> you got a, at least a 90 minute or two hour drive from the port into Rome. So yeah. Yeah, it's been quite a long time since we've been over to, to that part of Europe. So it's definitely on the, a list of things to do. We have a, a young one. And so I think that I would say that destination's probably being saved for us. We've got the we're doing a Northern British Isles cruise. Well, just the two of us next September on Disney. But we are taking our son on a Christmas markets river cruise through Adventures by Disney. Not this. Oh, you're doing the river cruise. Yeah, Yeah. we're doing the Danube River cruise, the Christmas markets one. So it's Christmas week of, of next year. Oh, so Aaron's done. Uh, Aaron's done a a river cruise. Yes, I don't, I don't remember which one. Yeah, she really liked those. I think that's a great market for Disney too. I think they could do a lot there. Let me segue then, Lynn, to this question for you, which is, you know, you're a passionate Disney cruiser and also sort of a commentator on the company a little bit um, or a lot, <laughs> so based on media relations as evaluation, I suppose. Where do you? I won't ask where do you see, or maybe maybe it's where do you see, or where do you want Disney Cruise Line to head. Pre-pandemic river cruises was something that they were seriously exploring. They went from offering, you know, a few cabins on a, you know, on a shared shared route with was it AMA? Yeah. yeah. To to basically chartering an entire boat or several boats, right? So that's something that they're that they're interested in. I think the thing that I would like to see for them, if they're going to continue charging a premium for their products, is to differentiate the ports or the itineraries that they have. If I want to go from, let's say, Port Canaveral to anywhere in the Caribbean, you know, especially Especially the you know east of Florida Caribbean. If I want to go on a really nice luxury ship, I you know I can spend eight thousand dollars to go on the Fantasy, or I can spend you know six thousand dollars or four thousand dollars to get a suite on Royal. And I, again, I, I I love Disney, but you know even a four a cat four a stateroom at those prices is not going to compare with a Skyloft suite on Royal. Just not right. I mean it's it's a bigger suite, right? And there are differences, right? Stylistically, I, I think the Disney ships are prettier. I think the spas are better. I think the bars are better. But again, you know four thousand is better. <laughs> it's a hard calculus. Yeah, right. Or you guys mentioned like Alaska. Like I think pre-COVID, Disney was charging upwards of $11,000 for a week in Alaska, whereas Royal was charging like four. I mean, $7,000 is a lot of money, yeah, right? It's a big price so, point difference. Yeah. Again, again, stylistically, there's no doubt that Disney's better, but are they $7,000 better? That's a tough argument to make. So I think they need to differentiate their product a little bit more, either through experiences or itineraries. Well, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we are we're taking a cruise to Alaska, but we're sailing out of Seattle. So we're going to go on Norwegian. I mean, going to Vancouver is no big deal for us from Seattle that we would go. We want to do a Disney cruise to Alaska. But to your point, when I priced out Norwegian, we can stay in the Haven and a suite that will accommodate our entire party. And, you know, so you're, for less than far less than it would take to sail on Disney in concierge class, which is sort of, I think, what the you know, Norwegian would argue would be the equivalent experience on, on Disney. And, you know, for not that much more than it would cost to go on the Disney cruise and get the multiple staterooms we need for the the party we're taking. So like it it's yeah, I I I agree. Like I I think there's experiences on Disney that make it stand out, but it is a hefty 
premium to get on those ships. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree. The other thing that we had noticed was that like back in 2015, Royal had started this policy where they were not going to discount cruises the closer you got to the, the embarkation date. And the, for the first year, we were like, oh, there's no way that they're going to hold the line on this. They're going to cave. But they didn't. And what Royal started seeing was that people would book earlier to get the best prices, which is exactly what Royal wanted them to do. And so in the last two years, we've seen Disney doing essentially the same thing, that last minute discounts are relatively few and far between, especially on you know the very popular routes or on the, uh, you know, on the fantasy. The only discounts you're going to get if you're not a cast member, for example, are going right. to are going to be those, you know, location based discounts if you live in the the place where the ship's sailing out of. Yeah. So that for that from that, I get the Florida resident discounts. Like if you're if you live in Florida, like I, I literally know people who have taken 100 Disney cruises you know, three nights on the on the dream because they live in Florida and, and can do that, right? But for everyone else, those prices are really, really, really high, um, especially if Disney's bringing out, you know, three more ships. It, I think that maintaining those prices, especially in this economy or in the economy we're likely to see, I think that's going to be really difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're all hopeful that bringing out some more ships might provide some pricing relief. It, I agree. I think in the immediate term, they're going to have to do something. But I mean, I hope it succeeds. What I hope is that the uh, that I stop questioning whether the price is worth the experience. Right. I, like I said, for you know, I don't I don't recall what I paid for either the Alaska, Hawaii, or Canada cruises, and whatever it was, it was fine because I enjoyed those. But you know, to get me to go on the Caribbean on another Caribbean cruise when I've already been on more than a dozen, like I mean, it's going to have to be a new ship or you know some fantastic deal. Those are the two things at this point for that. Well, and you're going to want to go to Lighthouse Point. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do love Castaway Key. I, I think Castaway Key is actually the best island in the Caribbean. It's uh, it's fantastic for what it is. They, they do a great job against it's just the price. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen anything about the development for for Lighthouse Point? Um, we've, we've seen a few things being kind of reported out there. We had a guest on the show recently who was a sort of a luxury cruiser and luxury vacation blogger. And so she had stayed on Eleuthera several times. She was actually, when we mentioned that Eleuthera was where Disney was putting its new private island, she was kind of shocked a little bit that that was their choice. Um, well, yeah, but yeah, but you, you know what the, you know what the, the primary characteristic of it is, right? So Castaway Key is six feet above sea level. Lighthouse Point is 95 feet above sea level. So there's a more than 0% chance, I think it's like 50-50, that by the end of Disney's 100-year lease on Castaway Key, it'll be underwater. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had read that. I had read that. Yeah. Yeah. So if, you know, if you're looking long-term like Disney is, when you're looking at years, you know, uh, decades-long leases... It's something they have to take into account. Yeah. Well, and Eleuthera opens some possibilities for them. I mean, people have been on the DVC side of things asking about resorts on some of these islands. And I think putting a resort on Castaway Key would be a mistake at some level. Yeah, no, you couldn't do it. Yeah. But Eleuthera, you know, there are people who live there. There are people who vacation there. So there's obviously ways to get there apart from a cruise, right? I I think there is like one luxury resort. I think our guest was telling us that there's like one luxury resort already on Eleuthera. And so, and and she was saying that the south end of the island is where everyone goes to do like snorkeling and other kinds of water excursions. And so that's the tip of the island that Disney is actually going to have, it seems. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether Disney takes over excursions and, and does them like they do at Castaway Key or whether or not there's going to be third party excursions like there are on the, you know, on the places that they don't own or lease or whatever the arrangement is. The entertainment, they'll be able to offer more varied entertainment, I think, in a, in a larger venue. The DVC thing is really interesting because setting aside the logistics of how you get people on a cruise and then, and then let them go, let them leave halfway and then, you know, 
potentially pick up again halfway on another cruise. Setting aside the logistics of it and the the legalities of whether that's even permitted under current maritime law, I I would totally do it. (laughs) It just just sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were talking to a cruise blogger out of the UK who was telling us about some cruise lines in Europe that are sort of, I'll call them hop on, hop off. Like it's a train. Right. Like a train. Exactly. So every day you might have a different, different passengers on your, your ship. It was, it, it was MSC cruises. And I was actually just like, they have a world cruise that if you look at their website, you're like, wait, they have like, they have like six world cruises. How can they actually support that with their shit? And you, what you realize is, well, one leaves from Spain and returns to Spain. And then one starts in, you know, whatever the third port in on that cruise is and returns. So it's like, what's happening is three days into your sailing out of Spain, you stop at a port and a bunch of people get on and they're going on a world cruise that will end there. <laughs> so right. like, yeah, 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 it's, okay. it, yeah, they're just sort of like picking up people along the way. On the DVC side, I would say what's interesting about Eleuthera is you could get there without a cruise ship. Because what you'd have to do, I think, if you're going to tie it to the cruise is there's a cruise there and you let everybody off. So it's a point to point cruise, which, you know, they can do, although there are some legalities there. But then you'd have to build a port on Eleuthera right. in order to let people yeah, get process it. Yeah. And, and can their airport sustain the traffic of people flying in and out for a resort there? Like, yeah. So lots of hurdles for sure. But I, I agree with you. Would be so fascinating. <laughs> I, I really think that smaller islands open up the possibility of doing J- Disney doing like even smaller cruise, cruise ships. Mm. Like I think is it is it Four Seasons that's doing basically luxury yachting yes. now? Yeah, yeah, fifty or fifty or sixty cabins. Yeah, there's a couple of cruise lines looking at it that too. Yeah, yeah. I thought again pre-pandemic, I thought it was something that that Disney might be interested in because. I don't know if you've if you've talked to Scott Sanders at uh, DCL Blog, but he and I have talked about the possibility of the either the newer ships having more concierge staterooms or retrofitting the older ships to have more concierge staterooms because I think they're almost constantly or they were at least almost constantly sold, which is amazing for the price that they charge for those rooms. By the way, right? I mean, I've done it and it's fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean. Uh, Concierge services are very good. But yeah, I mean, the prices are breathtaking on, on some of those things. More availability for that would mean more revenue for Disney. So taking that to sort of a, you know, an extreme, why not just have like a, an entire concierge ship? Yeah. 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 That's definitely possible. Well, Lynn, you, you mentioned that there are, you know, I mean, there are reasons why you keep going back to Disney Cruise Line uh, specifically. What are some of the things you think Disney Cruise Line does really well and the experiences that do have you coming back, you know, food, activities, that kind of stuff? Wh- wh- where do you think they shine? I think the number one thing that people should consider when they're thinking about Disney versus another cruise line is if you've got kids, the kids programs on the cruise line are second to none for Disney. Like it's, it's not even close. Like literally if you're thinking about a cruise and you've got small children, Disney is the answer and and that's it, right? Just find, find a, a ship and a port and itinerate. It's convenient for you and, and don't worry about the other cruise lines. It, they're that good. The other thing I think that they do really well, I mean, I, th- I think the ships are prettier than other ships, even, even Royals, like very large ships. But I think the other things that they do really well that are surprising are one, I think their bars are better than almost any other bar uh, that I've been on, certainly on any other ship, because they're themed. And they're, they're themed not only like, you know, the the decor and the the physical spaces, but like the music is appropriate for those things. And the, the example that I, I give is this, like if you walk into one of the champagne bars on the, the Dream of the Fantasy, right, you will... Uh, you will hear either Frank Sinatra or Edith Piaf, right? As, as God intended <laughs> exactly. for you to hear. <laughs> exactly. Right. But if you go to, you know, a comparable bar on Royal, and this has happened to me, you know, I walked in and I heard, you know, Bon Jovi. There's nothing, <laughs> what? there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with 
John Bon Jovi's music, right? He's, he's a talented artist. Do I want to hear him in a champagne bar? No, it's not. New Jersey is not what I think of when I think of champagne bars. All right. So the theming is more consistent, you know, on Disney. The other thing I would say is that their spas are better than any of the other cruise ships that I've been on. Like I think the the day passes that you can get for the the rainforest spas, especially in the, the dream and the fantasy, are by far like the best value you could get in cruising. It used to be like twenty dollars a day, I think it's around twenty five now per person, but you get the run of the spa and they they limit it to to twenty people per cruise, which means that for most of the day you you could walk in there and have literally no one else in a very nice spa on a billion dollars worth of cruise ship. And it's all for you. I think that's, I mean, in fact, we, Laurel and I actually like the, the rainforest spa so much on the Dream of the Fantasy that when we, when we remodeled our home, we built our showers to emulate. Oh my God, the, that's hilarious. Yeah, to emulate the so color patterns, circular structure, <laughs> um, and it, with the rainforest heads and everything. Yeah, wow. so nice. So when it's interesting you say the spa and I I get your point about the rainforest room. Brian's a big lover of the rainforest room. I personally don't like it because I don't like the weird showers and I don't like the weird smells in the sauna. But that's me. And that's a very (laughs) and that's a very individual thing. And I totally get that. I'm not because you're wrong and that's fine. No, listen, I'm, I'm okay that other people like it. I'm not one of those people who think like, oh, you're wrong because you like that. No, it's just not for me. Right. It's one of those Okay. But it's interesting sure. because the spa is staffed by the, the same people who staff the spas on all the other cruise lines. It's all it's a it's a contractor, oh, sure. right? It's a it's not actually Disney employees, technically speaking. Yeah. And, and like the weird services like the teeth whitening and the, right. the, the, like I never do any of that stuff. That's all very strange yeah. to me. But I, I just want to be, you know, in a spa where I can dip into a sauna, maybe take a shower to cool off and then, you know, get in a fluffy bathrobe sit on a heated stone lounger and read the New York Times on a cruise ship. Yeah. Like that's a perfect day for me, right? Yeah. The other thing I really like about that about the ships is I think Remy's actually one of the best restaurants I've been in on any cruise ship. And I don't think there's anything comparable, at least on Royal. Like I haven't tried like Cunard yet. I'm sure Cunard's fabulous. I, Remy is sort of head and shoulders above anything else I've been on, on any other cruise line. I think the menu is inventive. I think the service is excellent. Have you guys done the wine pairings with Remy? We have. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't really remember them, Lynn. <laughs> Dude. Fair point. No, we have. We've done both at dinner and at uh, brunch at Remy. We've done the champagne pairings and we've done the wine pairings at dinner. We had to intentionally impose like a we'll do wine with dinner at Remy, but we cannot do the wine pairings anymore because I distinctly remember walking back to our room after doing wine pairings more than once at Remy and being like, this ship is just moving a lot more than I remember it. Being. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, one of the times that Laurel and I went to Remy and we got the wine pairing, I and we didn't split it. Like a good strategy yes. is just split yes. the wine pairing. Yeah, yeah. We didn't. And uh, the only thing I remember from like appetizers on is that I applauded the cheese cart when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that cheese cart should be applauded. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. But the maitre d' looked at me and said, sir, that's not your cheese cart. <laughs> and... <laughs> I know. So yeah, good times. Actually, so speaking of drinking, so one thing that we started doing on the magic and the wonder is, you know, there's a, there's a bar at Palo that you could sit at even without reservations. Mm -hmm. So like Laurel and I aren't really big on uh, main dining room experiences, but if you, if you want to go grab a snack or something and then grab a drink, you could go to Palo and sit there for a really nice evening. It's one of the nicer bars in the uh, magic class ships and you don't need a reservation to get in. And it's usually not very crowded. I, 
I think that's a fantastic tip. Yeah, that, that is, is a great, a great tip. tip. Yeah, because you don't really think about that. Well, Len, I did want to ask you about, you mentioned main dining. You know, I think two places people tend to head when we talk about how Disney distinguishes itself in the cruise line. And let me just say, like, I, I don't know that these are actually distinguishing because I, I hear things like the food on other cruise lines is inedible. I don't know that that's actually true, but I'm curious to know your reactions to food generally outside of kind of the adult dining experiences and service. Because I think service is the other place where people say, oh, well, Disney is better. So again, most of my, I think all of my other cruise experiences have been on Royal because um, that's usually the direct competitor. And yeah, I, I do think the food in, in Disney is in the main dining rooms is slightly better than than on Royal. I think where Royal does better is much more variety for relatively small upcharges. So on Royal's beer ships, you might have 20 different restaurant options where on, on Disney, you've got, you know, four or five max. Great, the, you know, the food is better, but sometimes a slightly less good Taco Bell is is what you want, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. Sometimes you just want you know variety. Yeah. Sometimes you want uh, sushi yeah. or yeah, or Mexican food, and and you can't really get those, at least not in main dining for dinner yeah. in Disney. So I think the the food is is better on Disney, but I think the variety is better on on Royal, and that's why I think on the, with the newer ships, I'd be really surprised if we didn't see you know five, maybe even six valid options for dinner. If five would sort of be the minimum because that's what's on the dream and the the fantasy, and I think you know if there's room for six, they should do it. Even if it's an upcharge event. Are you thinking that maybe they would do like a family friendly upcharge restaurant? I think it would be. No, I think it'd be adults. Oh, another adults. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we I think we already know that there's not going to be Remy proper on it. It'd be something more, I think, American centric. Mm. So like a California grill at sea or whatever. But even then, one more option from that seems like it would be a good idea. When it comes to service... Yeah, I, I don't think anyone can touch Disney's service. I think they're they're excellent at what they do. Royal is not is not bad. Both of them are are, are way above average. I think Disney's is a little bit better. You know, is it worth the price? Like I've, I've I've sailed concierge on on Disney and it's and it's absolutely fantastic. Concierge on Disney I think is better than the Skyloft Genie experience we had on Royal. Although Royal was significantly less expensive, and again for you know it's it's one of those things like would I you know would I go grab my own cans of soda for five thousand dollars? <laughs> <laughs> probably. I you mean, know, most days I would. Yeah, right? If somebody I mean, wanted to know. pay me to go grab some cans of sodas, five thousand dollars, I'd be happy. It's yeah, I'll be on call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you know, I, I I could do that, right? I, I could stock my own refrigerator and and, and get my own, you know, chocolate covered strawberries. Yeah, so that's really what it comes out for me. It's it's you know if if we're, if money's not an object, yeah, you know Disney's better. But you know when I'm writing a a guidebook for consumers for for the general public, that's always sort of in the uh, in the back of your mind, if not the forefront. Well, Lynn, last question here on the cruise line side of things, which is just, you know, do you have a favorite memory or a really unique experience that you had on board that uh, really stands out for you? Oh, uh, so many, on, especially on Disney. So one was I had not been on the Magic for a number of years. So for whatever reason, we were, we, had, we had decided to sail the other ships. It was like at least three years difference. And we were walking on the Magic and we're going in to make a reservation for Palo. And we passed by one of the wait staff and I'm, I'm forgetting his name and I think it was Alex, but I'm not sure. And he, as I was walking into, you know, the auditorium where you make um, reservations, he said, Oh, Mr. Tester, are you coming to see me at Palo? And I hadn't seen this dude in like three or four years. And it amazes me that they can remember people like that, right? Like that's a, that's a skill that I don't have. I, I'm not that good with faces. And you figure those guys see thousands of people over the course of a year and to remember all of them, it was just, it was amazing. He had, he had no way of knowing that I was coming on the ship or that I was going to be in that particular, even if he did, right? Even if somebody told him like, Hey, you know, Len is going to be on the ship. How does he remember what I looked like for three or four years ago? And, and I'm sure no one told him. Yeah, that's, that's amazing to me. The other thing that I really enjoyed was, um, have you guys ever 
ever done the kitchen tour? No, that's something we, we haven't gotten oh, to do. Oh my God. One of the best things you can do on a Disney ship for a couple of reasons. One, it's amazing to see the facilities involved in preparing, you know, hundreds or thousands of meal, meals at once and getting that level of quality, right? Like just the processes behind the scenes is, is amazing. And for me, that was sort of the the most interesting thing. I, I tell people this all the time. Take some, take the, the simplest possible thing that you can think of to do, like turning a light switch on or off. Do you think you could turn a light switch on and off correctly a thousand times in a row? And I would bet the answer is no, right? If you told me you could, I would bet against that, right? So how do you how do you create a thousand meals or five thousand meals a day to that level of consistency? So to see how they do that, one of the ways that they do it is they actually have printed color picture guides for every menu for every night that show you each step in the assembly and how it should look. But stuff like that is fascinating to me. Also, by the way, the kitchen is immaculate. Like if I if something went wrong on a cruise ship and they told me, Len, you have to have an emergency surgery, I would be like, well, well, you know, bring me to the kitchen because that's the cleanest place on the ship. <laughs> and I think, you know, like the the snacks that Disney has, like mm-hmm. Even their pizza, which is not great pizza, right? But man, something about, you know, being in the open ocean makes you want really bad cheese and pepperoni pizza at 11 o'clock at night. Totally. You know? And chicken fingers. Yeah. <laughs> and we've got the chicken fingers with the barbecue yeah. sauce, right? Who does? I feel <laughs> like everyone loves... We've got and we've got mustard. Yeah, everyone loves yeah. chicken fingers. I feel like that's just a thing. Yeah. <sighs> um, yeah. Lynn, I think we've reached this point in the show where we're going to head over to our rapid fire round, which is Ooh, Sam's right. Sam's favorite. So I'm going to hand it over to her to do the rapid fire round. Okay, so Len, the only rule of rapid fire is there are no rules. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Okay. So, what is your favorite Disney or Pixar character? My favorite Disney or Pixar. I have a tattoo of Mickey Mouse, so I'm going to go with Mickey Mouse. Ah, perfect. That that seems wildly appropriate for you. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Your favorite Disney or Pixar movie? Ratatouille. Oh, nice. That's Brian's favorite oh, that's as my well. Absolute favorite. <laughs> Your favorite Disney song? Oh, the Magic Kingdom main entrance melody or the Epcot 1982 uh, main entrance melody. I, so a funny story, when I was doing my thesis, I actually listened to the official album from 1991 so much that I can't listen to it now <laughs> because it, it instantly brings me back to you know long nights of writing you know, hunched over a computer. Like I, I love all the individual songs, but uh, it, it's basically a trigger for me now. <laughs> it's like PTSD. It brings you back to that yeah. moment. Yeah. Your favorite Disney Cruise Line ship? Fantasy, without a doubt. In fact, I'll, I'll say this now because Disney won't stop me, but I will one day steal all of the Mary Blair art <laughs> on the fantasy. So it, it's yeah. really good. Your favorite rotational dining restaurant, and this could be on any of the ships. It doesn't have to be on the fantasy. Uh, it's a enchanted garden. Oh, interesting. Why? I love the decor. You really sort of feel like you're in a garden and I like the change in lighting uh, that they do as well. Plus, I like I like how those high booth sort of semicircular tables. It really feels like you're in a swanky French restaurant. Yeah. Your favorite adult dining. Okay. So if I had one meal to eat for the rest of my life in a in Palo Remy, it would be the Palo Brunch, <laughs> which I think yes. literally everyone says That's that. That's what right? we say too. You would be surprised. There are people who don't say Palo Brunch. There are a few people who say Palo. Yeah. There are a few people who say yeah, Palo wrong. dinner, <laughs> but they're wrong. Exactly. <laughs> the word you're looking for here is, is the, the ill-informed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're, if, you're, if you don't think that's the best value meal on the Disney Cruise Line, let me go with you because I'll, I'll you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, exactly. Literally. Okay. Your favorite part of the ship? Oh, is that the spas or the bar? 
I'm going to go with the bars because it's a little more social. Like I think pink is an excellent champagne bar. It's small. It's dedicated. I think both the Skylines are better. I like the one in the fantasy because it's got more cities. But I, I really think they, they, they do the entertainment areas really well. And I would say it would have to be on the fantasy. Okay. Your favorite DCL onboard activity. And I'm going to set aside the spa because we know you love the rainforest room. So second to the rainforest room at the spa, what's your next favorite onboard activity? I, I love the um, the interactive Muppets game on the fantasy because it's just so clever. And you number one, you've got kids, you burn off a lot of energy running around the ship. Number two, it's it's funny. The other thing that I really like, I love seeing movies on the ship because I mean, normally I, I'm not going to, you know, see five movies in a week. I don't have that kind of time. And frankly, it's it's expensive, right? But I think I've seen more first run movies on Disney Cruise Lines than I have in theaters, like since I started cruising. Yeah. Okay, your favorite DCL itinerary. Oh, this is really hard because my favorite itinerary isn't served by my favorite ship. Okay, so I said before my three favorite cruises were Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. If I had to pick one again, it would probably be Alaska just for the scenery. Although Canada would be number two. Okay, the last question of Rapid Fire. This is a bucket list cruise. Now, I want to qualify this is it doesn't even have to be someplace that Disney currently sails to or has ever sailed to. So where you want to go, you know, on a cruise, but you want it to be on Disney Cruise Line. I would totally do an around the world cruise on on Disney Cruise Line. So when we were on the um, Royal, I believe it was the Anthem had just launched and we were getting ready to, they were, they were getting ready to, after our sort of inaugural cruise or whatever it was, getting ready to do like 63 days around the world. So they're going basically from New Jersey to China, but the long way around everything. And it wasn't, it wasn't even that bad. It was like, I think $18,000, which, you know, I mean, if you live in a, in a big city like Seattle or New York, that's not even rent, right? Three months, $18,000, I would, I would totally pay for that. So I think that's what, you know, I would love to do that. Like, let's say start in, you know, start in New York and end up in Barcelona, but go the long way. That would be amazing. You know, go west. Well, Lynn, it has been fantastic talking to you this evening. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of you and your websites and your books, but if not, just in case, how can folks connect with you and Touring Plans? Uh, so our site is touringplans.com on Instagram, you know, at Touring Plans and, uh, and on Twitter as well. Uh, my email is len at touringplans.com. If anybody has any questions or anything. And then also you can find me uh, in the unofficial guide books both on Amazon and in regular bookstores too. Thanks again, Lynn, for coming on. It's been a lot of fun, just a lot of fun talking to you this evening. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thank you, Sam, too, for the uh, great questions. Well, it was a treat, to say the least, to talk to Lynn Testa tonight. Uh, He is so knowledgeable about the parks, and I cannot speak highly enough of touring plans. It's a site that we have a subscription to ourselves. We use it all the time when we're planning trips, when we're on trips. And the unofficial guides, we've had Aaron Foster, Seth Kaberski on the show, and now Lynn. We love the unofficial guides, so also a great resource for trip planning. But great to catch up with Lynn. Great to hear his thoughts on Disney Cruise Line. He's an avid cruiser and really knowledgeable about Disney, so really great to to catch up with him about Disney Cruise Line. So just a lot of fun. We really hope you enjoyed the episode because it was a lot of fun to make. Um, I did want to get to reading one of our five-star reviews on the air. And this one comes from Big Kid at Heart 77 who writes, all about theme parks. This is your first blog I'm hearing and loved it. Definitely cool to hear about aspects of different parks in different regions. Hoping to get the opportunity to go to Disneyland next year or Tokyo Disney for fun and seeing family. Enjoyed the blog and we'll be listening to more. Well, glad you've been enjoying the podcast. Appreciate you listening and thank you for the the reviews.
review. With that, I just want to say to everyone out there, thanks for listening this week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep getting great content from the DCL Duo each week. Please also leave us a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are really helpful in making the podcast more visible to folks who might be looking for our content, and we will read reviews on the air each week. If you'd like to send us a question or be a guest on the show, please email us at dclduo at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media at DCL Duo. You can also head over to our DCL Duo channel on YouTube for even more great content. The DCL Duo podcast and vlog are not affiliated with Disney Cruise Line, the Walt Disney Company, or the Walt Disney family of theme parks. The views expressed on the show are solely those of the individuals on the podcast and in no way reflect the views of the Walt Disney Company or Disney Cruise Line. If you have questions about a Disney cruise or a Walt Disney vacation, please contact Disney directly or your own travel agent. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time for another fabulous Disney adventure with the DCL Duo. Good night.